0: Uh, It's really good to be back with you today. We missed last week. We were actually invited by Morningstar Tours, which we've used a lot of times in the past, to uh, come over to Europe and take this boat ride along the Danube River through Austria and Germany. And you know how it is when you're invited to take a ride on a cruise ship or whatever. You pray till you get the victory and then you go. So we were there for a little while, and one of the things that was remarkable to us there is that we were able to stop in several places, and the Christmas markets were there, and the music was phenomenal, and, you know, we owe a great deal to Europe and the Reformation that was there and all that took place. Uh, um, in, in Europe, and uh, we've, we've taken that, and in many cases, Europe is dark now, but I see a revival coming. There's a lot of good things that are going on over there, and so we're, uh, anyway, well, we enjoyed it. We're privileged to be back. Uh, this is a marvelous congregation, as exhibited even today, and uh, just a pleasure to be with you. What I want to do is take a look at a familiar passage of Scripture Uh, and kind of spin back through time a little bit and see where God's redemptive plan began in space and in time. And so from a faraway place, an angelic visitor came to an obscure young girl in a nondescript village, and he makes an announcement that would actually change the world. The promised Messiah is on his way, and he's going to come through a virgin. Now, if miracles could be rated, this one would be a perfect 10, if you please. Uh, Earlier in the chapter, another miracle occurred as well, and there was a woman, elderly woman named Elizabeth, and she was long past her ability to conceive, but the angel appeared to her husband, Zacharias, and the angel told him that Elizabeth would conceive and bear a son, and she did. And God uh, brought a son from the barrenness of her her womb, and we know him as John the Baptist. But in Mary's case, uh, God is bringing about a conception without a human father, and uh, therefore he's upping the degree of difficulty, but only in our understanding, because there are no degrees of difficulty with the omnipotent God that we worship. Uh, In Mary's case, um, well, let me put it this way. Unfortunately, we live today in a culture with kind of a reductionist mentality. Uh, If we can't explain in human terms, you know, why something happened, then we believe it can't happen. It's kind of a protected, riskless system. But if the God of the Bible is real... Uh, then we must affirm that he is able to do the impossible. Now, he is no longer producing saviors through virgin women, but he continues to work in all kinds of supernatural ways. And we see it on a regular basis around here, even in our own fellowship here. He turns people from habitual sin to victory in Christ. He mends relationships that in often cases have been severed for a number of years and what god has a way of doing is carving through the hardcore veneer of resistors and restoring a tender spirit now there's a message in verse 37 for each of us and it simply is this nothing is impossible with god and that's why we pray for the sick and the depressed and the hurting and we do it because god works Now, let me uh, walk through the narrative just a little bit here. The angel Gabriel came to um, Mary in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy and informed her that God's redemptive plan is about to be set in motion here on earth. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah uh, would enter the world and would come through Mary. Now again, let me read a verse or two here, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, and the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary." Now, Nazareth, the city of Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It was a minor military post. It was somewhat picturesque there in the land of Galilee, but it was insignificant. No one of of distinction uh, lived in Nazareth. And then 30 years later, it was still kind of the, if you please, cultural armpit of the entire nation of Israel now, on one occasion, Nathanael said with a slur, and he was a disciple, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And again, verse 28. And, in, and coming in, he said to her, and this is Jesus talking to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now each of those descriptions of the child would have struck Mary as remarkable, It was remarkable that this child that is coming is going to be great, she being of humble origins. It was remarkable that he would reign over the house of David because the house of David had fallen on hard times. It had been cast down and foreigners were now ruling in the land. But the real remarkable thing that Gabriel said to Mary is this that he is going to be, the son you deliver, is going to be the son of the Most High. In other words, he is not going to have a human father. His father is going to be God the Father. Now in Semitic thought, the term son implies equality. So the son will possess Uh, the same attributes as the Most High. So we're talking about God coming in the flesh, the second person of the triune God. Now, notice Mary's response. How can this be since I am a virgin? Now, mind you, Gabriel has been covering a lot of ground here. Mary, you're favored of God. His smile is on you. You're going to be the birthing mother of the promised Messiah, You're going to call him Jesus. He's God in the flesh, God of the Most High. So Gabriel is way down the track, and Mary is stuck right at the gate. How am I going to get pregnant? I'm a virgin. It reminds me of when I was in first grade. Uh, You know, that was a long time ago. It was just barely after the earth's crust hardened. (laughs) But uh, anyway, I was in first grade, and we had a beloved teacher that was there and. And she's talking to us and says, you know, we have the privilege now. We're going to get up, and we're all going to hold hands and mark down the hallway and go see the nurse, and we're going to get a polio shot. Anybody remember those polio shots? Okay, you got old enough to remember that. And uh, she sat, and then she took off. and. Talked about this marvelous vaccine that uh, the people had produced. And we don't have to worry about getting cra- uh, polio. And, we, you know, and then she talked about how bad being crippled is and so forth. And as a first grade class, we sort of got what she was saying. But where do you think, what do you really think that a bunch of six-year-olds was thinking during that time? The shot part, right. We were stuck, pun intended, on the shot. You know, how big is the needle? Where are they gonna stick me? How much is it going to hurt? Am I going to suffer the humiliation of crying before all of my classmates? You know, and so while Gabriel is announcing the marquee event in all of redemptive history, Mary wants a biological explanation of how it's going to occur. And so Gabriel delicately answers Mary, not with the how, but with the who. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to impregnate impregnate you, Mary, and it will be a miracle of God. Now, Mary's response in verse 38, behold, the bond slave of the lord may it be done to me according to your word now in effect what mary was saying when she mentioned those words was i'm willing to be disgraced i'm willing to deal with the shame of being pregnant without a husband i'm willing to deal with the ridicule when i tell my friends that my pregnancy is from god and that i'm carrying the messiah And I'm also willing to endure the heartache of having my fiancé Joseph walk right out of my life. He would never believe what I was going to say. Now, Mary didn't know that God would also send Gabriel to Joseph and let him know what was going on. She figured that he would just disappear. So Mary was, in fact, submitting to being a young single mother living on the lip of poverty her entire life. She says, may it be done to me according to your word. And that is a great statement of faith uh, for a young woman, young lady, really, young girl who has been given this kind of responsibility from God. Now, let me share with you a few implications that kind of come out of this story. First of all, theologically, Jesus was born of a virgin, and what that does is it links Jesus with God, the triune God. Now, there are some things that as Christian believers that we can agree upon, or should say disagree upon with one another, like the length of a day in the creation account. How long was it? Was it... uh, A long day or a 24-hour day or is it beyond that? You know, we discuss that. Or, Or the events that are surrounding the end times. There are so many things and people talk about what's going to come when Jesus returns and how's it going to be done. And there's a lot of disagreement among the people of God about that kind of a thing. But when it comes to the virgin birth, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection, and the physical return of Christ, those things are absolutely non-negotiable when it comes to Orthodox Christianity. The implications of who Jesus is are so far-reaching that to eliminate any one of them would reduce Christianity to cult status. So the virgin birth really reveals just two essential attributes of God. This is under that first implication here, by the way. The first is simply this. The virgin birth points to Jesus' eternal nature. You see, God shows his creative power in the union of a man and a woman. The Son of God, however, was not created by that kind of a union he wasn't even created at all. He was simply incarnated. In other words, he existed before creation. Now, if you exist and you weren't created, then you're eternal. So he who eternally existed now comes in the flesh. So, Jesus became what he was not, and that was a man, but he did not cease to be what he was, and that was God. And that makes Jesus the God-man, and he's referred to as such. Uh, So, the virgin birth points to Jesus' eternal nature. Second, the virgin birth points to Jesus' sinlessness. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned there in the garden, they lost their moral innocence. Uh, they assumed a sin nature, and now they had a natural bent to doing that which was evil, and that sin nature was passed down to all of humanity. As cute as these young girls were up here today singing, and the guys as well, they all have a sin nature, just like you and just like me, and that's what happened when that. And that's what happened when when we uh, that sin nature was passed to all of humanity except one, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus were the product of a man and a woman, his humanity would have possessed a sin nature as well. So what the virgin birth does is it guarantees that Jesus' humanity did not carry a sin nature. Uh, He could be, and was externally tempted by Satan, and we understand that. But Jesus couldn't be internally tempted because evil desire was not sourced in him. So Jesus was not only able not to sin, Jesus was unable to sin. And the doctrine that says that Jesus, while he was on earth, could not commit a sin is the doctrine of the impeccability Uh, Of Christ. And the word impeccable simply means not capable of sinning. And the impeccability of Christ guaranteed his divine nature. So, Jesus is God, and therefore he is holy, he is all powerful, and he is immutable. Now, because Jesus is holy, there's nothing in his constitution that would draw him to sin. Because Jesus is all-powerful, there's nothing that could overcome his his holiness and cause him to sin. And because Jesus is unchanging, his sinlessness is guaranteed for all of eternity. So Jesus is the sinless, eternal God. He is the unmanageable sovereign. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam named the animals in the garden, he, you know, it wasn't so much about labels as much as it was about dominion. The man was exercising dominion and jurisdiction over the animal kingdom by naming them. So humans are the stewards of the earth. They're the ones that are in charge. They name the animals. The animals do not name them. Now, in verse 25, Joseph called Mary's newborn Jesus. But he was following the words of Gabriel in verse 21. And even Gabriel was not acting unilaterally when he he told Mary, you're going to call him Jesus. Uh, This was God's directive. God is naming this child. Now, parents here have a right to name their children because they're the ones that manage their children and give their children direction. But Joseph and Mary were not allowed to name their son. And it was because they didn't manage him. In reality, he manages them. So to be sure, Jesus obeyed his parents while growing up. It was part of honoring them and fulfilling the law. But in the greater scheme, Jesus had the authority and jurisdiction over them and over everybody else. Now, occasionally, someone will speak, and perhaps you've talked about the Lord to other people, and they'll, they'll say something like, well, you know, let's regulate God a little bit. Uh, you know, let's not get too religious. Let's take Jesus in small doses. And what, when somebody says something like that, they misunderstand the nature of Christianity because when Christ enters a life, he totally reconstructs it. You know, he takes the cottage and he creates a palace. He makes, you know, takes out walls, pours new footings, adds rooms. You know, this is what Jesus does. He comes in and remakes a life. And it's always going to be better than that. So Christianity is not a a subculture. A subculture is just a little slice of a culture. You get a subculture with avid gardener or avid gardeners or avid golfers or... Uh, avid art artist or, or whatever it happens to be, just a small slice of, the, of, of, a, of a culture. So Christianity is not a religious file that we put in the file drawer of our life. Christianity is the file drawer where we put all of the files of our life, our career file, our family file, our, whatever it happens to be, every aspect of who we are you know, relates to who Jesus is and he is the one that manages it. So Christianity is a culture Uh, and it permeates everything and Christ's dynamic presence makes the Christian life for you and for me both fearful and exciting. Now think with me. Because God is sovereign, there's nothing more fearful than ignoring him. Because God is good, there's nothing more exciting than obeying him. So there's a wildness. There's an unpredictability about following Jesus. He is not the kitten of Judah. He is the lion of Judah. Lions aren't pets. They can't be manipulated. Now let me give you a second implication. Historically, Jesus was born in time and space, and that links him to the world. And Luke is writing, and he's writing to a Greek audience, and the Greeks believed that anything important really didn't happen in the physical realm, it happened in the spiritual realm. But Luke shows them that this Savior here walks on the pavement, he eats real food, He's not like the mythical gods that never identified with earthlings. Uh, The Greeks felt that their gods were too great to do that kind of a thing, to stoop to that level. So he's speaking to a culture of his day because Jesus stoops. You see, Jesus comes to our level. And, And think about it a little bit. The power of the greater to enter into the realm of the lesser is a test of its greatness. Like you can play go fetch with your dog, but your dog can't sit down and talk theology with you. Uh, the humble understand those who are arrogant, but those who are arrogant do not understand those who are humble. Those who are wise understand those who are foolish But those who are foolish have no understanding of those who are wise. Those who are generous understand those who are stingy. Those who are stingy have no understanding of those who are generous. So by definition, the greater is great because it can enter into the realm of the lesser. But by definition, the lesser is less because it cannot enter into the realm of the greater. And so we ask, how great is our God? And the answer to that is the most high became the most low. We can only have a relationship with God if he initiates it and if he stoops to our level because we can't rise to his level. Now, let me give you the third implication. Personally, Jesus was born to be a savior, and that's what links our Lord Jesus Christ to us. Now, in Luke chapter 2, the angels... Tell the shepherds out in the field that today in the city of David uh, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord and bound up in the word savior is an indication of our desperate state without it. You see, this Christmas, most of you, probably all of you are at some point in time going to gather around with perhaps friends and family a tree and open up gifts that have been given to you in love. Now, let me pick on the men for just a moment. It's far, risk, far less risky than to pick on the women. But let's say, uh, men, that you have three gifts underneath the tree on Christmas morning. Uh, the first gift, Uh, ends up being an exercise video on how to lose 20 pounds. The second gift is a certificate for a year's supply of Rogaine. And the third is a book entitled How to Make a Friend. Now, if you ponder the significance of those gifts, you might come to the conclusion that those who love you think you're fat, bald, and obnoxious, okay? (laughs) Now, let me transfer this to the spiritual realm just a little bit. No one loves you more than God, no one. And no one is more practical than God when it comes to giving gifts, and God says your greatest need is not a leaner body or thicker hair or a more pleasing personality. Your greatest need is a savior. You're so desperate that nothing less than God's greatness will be able to rescue you from God's wrath. To believe you can save, be saved by your own good works is to mock God's gift what it does is it diminishes God's gift and it also sanitizes your own sinfulness. You see, the mission of Jesus to save is really bound up in the meaning of his name. You see, the Hebrew equivalent for Jesus is Joshua. And in the Old Testament, Joshua was the lieutenant of Moses. Uh, he joined Moses in leading the Israelites back to the promised land and actually received the baton from Moses and went in and conquered the enemies in the, and then occupied the land itself. But Joshua means Jesus saves, Yahweh saves. And so Jesus is Joshua. And every time Mary and and Joseph call out his name, Jesus, The you know, the Old Testament is Joshua, the gospel is being proclaimed. Yahweh saved. Every time, Joshua, Yahweh saves. Joshua, Yahweh saves. You see, in his humanity, Jesus was a common man with a common trade and lived among common people. But on the other hand, inside this common man on the outside was none other than Yahweh. He was splendor in the ordinary. And he came to create splendor in your ordinary life and in my ordinary life. Romans 5.8 encapsulates the Christmas message. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're the, we're the Chernobyl, if you please, of the created order. You know, sin has melted down our hearts. The only thing left is to isolate it, to bury it, and keep the contamination away. But at just the right time, the most high became the most low, and he gave his life and completed the purchase of your salvation. You see, we all have a desire to be loved forever and to be loved whatever, And our love songs and our poems describe the desires of our heart in this fashion. We look forward in a marriage, we look forward in a friendship, but no single person is able to deliver what we really need save one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. God loves us forever, he loves us whatever, and he provided the radical nature of divine love not by just promising salvation but by delivering it. It began with the incarnation. It continues through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it will be consummated at his physical return. And that, that is when you will be perfected for glory itself. And it all started, it all started with Gabriel's announcement to Mary, you're going to be the birthing mother of Israel's Messiah and really the Messiah of the whole world. It's the Christmas story. It's why we keep coming back to it. God came down. God came down in the flesh because he loved you with an infinite love that you may not even be aware of right now. But nevertheless, it's why we meet in a place like this. Will you stand and I'll close in prayer and if there's a closing song, the worship team can make their way out here.